Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name is John McGahan from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we have created a podcast, bringing some of the top tennis athletes and tennis coaches from across the globe together. We hope you enjoy our next episode. Welcome to episode 42 of Control the Controllables. Today we have James McGee. James McGee is a former, former Irish number one, um, has been as high as 150 in the world ATP. Uh, James, in 2014, qualified for US Open in what was a dramatic event, amazing effort from James and he, he talks in detail if you watch out near the end of the episode, actually. He gives a great insight into, into that period um, and what he was thinking and going through. You know, when we're watching these players on telly, we never quite know what they are actually going through and what's happening behind the scenes. So that's a brilliant story. He's now working for a youth foundation in Las Vegas um, where he's really found his purpose um, kind of ironically, really, on the on the back of Mental Health Awareness Week last week, he is working now with young young people that have had mental health problems. So it's something that's very close to his heart. So we we touch on that as well. He looks at Irish tennis, um, from a general sense and also kind of in in specifically to his journey. Um, and all in all, it's it's just a fantastic podcast. It, it really is a. Um, kind of 42 podcasts in it, we're not getting bored speaking to these people you know it's a different different person each time uh, they bring their own story and just to learn uh, what makes these people tick that have been so successful in in our sport is is really fascinating so I'm sure you guys are going to love this one as well as always, um, we've had a we've had a couple of weeks now without any ratings and reviews on the iTunes. So um, please do keep doing that. Even just just a couple of words, a little rating. Let's keep spreading the the podcast out there. Um, and and that's it. That's it. Over to over to James McGee. Enjoy the podcast. James McGee, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on Control the Controllables. A big, big thank you from myself and Dan for giving your time up to us tonight. Thank you, guys. I appreciate being on your podcast. Delighted to, to be here and look forward to chatting. Uh, again, James, just uh, for the listeners that are listening in, I uh, want to give a short profile of yourself. Uh, you've had a, a, an extra, a brilliant career, a career high of 146 in the world. You're a former Irish number one, an Irish Open champion. You're an Irish Davis Cup professional, and you've competed at all the Grand Slams across the world. Um, once again, a big, big thank you for coming on with us tonight. Thank you. <laughs> James, it's Danny. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Um, you're, you're currently in Vegas, so how, how's life in Vegas right now? Yeah, you know, Dan, I was just, uh, just before we went live on air, I was talking uh, to you about the last time we saw each other, and... Um, I actually, there's, there's two challenger or there's one challenger in Vegas that I, I used to play in October every year. And uh, the last two times I played was 2015 and 2016. And both times I lost first round of, of, of this challenger, 6-1, 6-2, one, one year, and 6-1, 6-3 the next year. 
And I remember in 2016, when I was flying out of Vegas, I told myself, and I swore to myself, I said, I'm never coming back to this city. I hate it. Everything, everything about it, I don't like. And it was so funny because uh, fast forward to, to now, 2020, and I've been here for two years. And honestly, uh, I've been having the time of my life. Um, I now work for a youth foundation out here called the Inspiring Children Foundation. And uh, we do a lot of different work. We focus primarily on mental and emotional health. We also uh, do a lot of, uh, we, I coach tennis out here. Um, we do a lot of project-driven learning. We have an entrepreneurship program. And the idea of the foundation is basically to help kids who are at risk or disadvantaged. And through the program, we help them get uh, scholarships to some of the best universities in America. So over the last, uh, you know, it's been around for 18 years. And I'll tell you how I got involved in a second. But um, over the last 18 years, 95% of kids who have uh, come through our foundation have gone on to earn a college scholarship. Not only go to college, but get a, a college scholarship. So we've had kids going to Harvard, Stanford, Dartmouth, Yale, Princeton, uh, pretty much all the Ivy Leagues, as, uh, along with some other top colleges in America. So to be part of this uh, foundation means a lot to me. And, uh, you know, that's, a, that's the main reason why I'm actually in Las Vegas. It's definitely not for the casinos and the nightclubs. I, I, I did that. I, I lived that old life. Uh, back in my 20s, but it's not something that's uh, a priority for me now. But um, I'm very happy to be here. It's currently it's about it's about 42 degrees Celsius outside, so it's scorching at the moment. But I'm getting used to it. No, and and I, you know what? It's, it's, and again, we said just before the podcast started, we've had Mental Health Awareness Week on the on the podcast. You know, it's been it's been incredible. The stories that everyone's shared, the experiences. And, and the feedback from people listening has been incredible. This isn't officially part of that week, you know, but mm -hmm. like I think I said in the, in the last podcast, when I did the outro to the last podcast, the, the reality of well, life, but the reality of tennis and sport is when you get under the bonnet of it and people's stories it is going to be a hot topic that's going to continue to come up and up and up, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's, and it's really nice that our first podcast since, you know, we're going to be <laughs> able to dig into some of those areas as well. And, you know, I'm really excited to hear some of those stories. If you don't mind, I'd love for the context of it. I'd like to take the listeners through your journey, you know, and we've had, we've had Conan Island on, um, we've had Paul Casey on, we've had Pete Bothwell on, so we've had some of the Irish names over the years. We've got Sam Barry's coming on in, in a couple of weeks. But there hasn't been a lot of, lot of you. You know, there hasn't mm -hmm. been a lot of you, certainly, that have got to the point that have, you know, I remember very well watching with Goosebumps when you qualified 2014, <laughs> I believe, US Open. That's right, yeah. You know, which is, in a, in a, and again, we want to get into that. So where did the story start for you, the tennis story? Yeah, uh, well, going way back, um, growing up in Ireland, um, you know, I was sports mad growing up. I played Gaelic football, I played hurling, I played tennis, uh, I did swimming, I did rollerblading, I did all sorts of all sorts of things growing up. And I lived about less than a mile away from uh, my local tennis club, which is called Castlenock Lawn Tennis Club. And it was my mom that kind of got me involved in, you know, I, I would hit balls on, on the road and stuff as a, as a four and five year old, but it was my mom that brought me down to Castlenock Lawn Tennis Club, um, you know, when I was probably about seven or eight. And, you know, once I, I started playing tennis, it, it, 
you know, after a couple of years, it was clear to me that it was my favorite sport. I love the individual nature of the sport. I love the fact that, um, you know, there was singles, there was doubles. Again, I was right. You know, I, I, I had the opportunity to make a lot of friends um, in my local club. And I think, you know, I didn't, like most players that turn pro, you don't pick up a racket to, to necessarily to turn pro. You, you, you pick up a racket because you love the sport and you love the feeling of hitting a ball and you love the feeling of, of competing and running around. And I, I absolutely fell in love with it from a very young age. And I, was, I got coaching in Castleknock till I was about 12 years of age. Um, got up to a decent level as a 12-year-old. As a I wasn't number one in the country uh, by, by any means, but I was probably like a top 10 in Ireland type of, type of level uh, by the time I was 12. And when I was 13 years of age, um, I met a man, and I know you know this uh, guy, Dan, um, from, from back in the day, but I met a, a Canadian coach named Larry Jurovich. Yep. He had flown over from, from Canada to Ireland to, to start coaching. He coached at a place called Westwood in Clontarf. And it was at 13 years of age that um, he kind of had a big influence on my life because he started talking to me about self-belief and he started talking to me about hard work and he started talking to me about what really makes a tennis player, like the really important things, as opposed to just forehands, backhands, serves and volleys. He was talking to me about the intangibles and the really important things. So when I was 13 years of age, uh, myself and a number of um, players in Ireland, I remember at the time we had like uh, James Kluski, we had uh, Darren McLaughlin, we had uh, Rory Green. We had a bunch of players um, that went to school at a place called Belvedere College. Um, you know, from, we went to school there from about 12 to 18 and after school, we would go to Westwood and we'd train with Larry in different squads. And between the ages of about 13 and 17, Larry had a big impact on my life. I feel like I really progressed as a tennis player, um, started to believe in myself a lot more. And by the time I was 17, I was kind of, I was one of the top players, if not the, the, the top player in Ireland. I, I was probably... I wouldn't say I was the top player, but I was making finals of, of, of Irish close tournaments and Irish open tournaments. And I was making finals of the junior nationals and that type of thing. And at 17 years of age, um, I was approached by two sponsors in Ireland, two people that, that had the money to support me. And this really came out of the blue, but they said, hey, you know, we'd like to, we'd like to get behind you. We'd like to, we believe in you. We think you've got a chance to actually do something with tennis and we'd like to, we'd like to support you. But on one condition, you're going to have to leave Ireland and move to Spain or move somewhere else that's really, you know, going to, going to improve your tennis and take you to the next level. So at the time I was, I was 17, I was in fifth year in Ireland and most people in Ireland, uh, you know, go on to sixth year and they complete their leaving cert. And if you don't do that, it's, it's considered quite um, an extreme move. Like not a lot, mo the vast majority of people complete their leaving cert. But at the time, at, at 17, I was, I, at this stage, I was very determined to be a professional tennis player. I was also very naive at the time. I didn't really know what it took to be a professional tennis player. I didn't understand the ins and outs of, of it. Um, but long story short, I ended up moving over to Barcelona, Spain, which was considered the hub at the time. You'd know well about this, Dan. Um, and I started training at a tennis academy called the Catalan Federation. Yeah. Now, at the time... A lot, prior, about six months before I got there, there was tons and tons of players coming out of the Catalan Federation 
But when I got there, they were going through a, a huge transition. They had lost a number of coaches. And when I got there, I was, I was kind of, um, I wasn't in a great environment. I was, I was put with, I, I, I was training every day with players that really didn't want to be pro tennis players. Um, I was living in dorms. I didn't have the best diet. I didn't understand the value of sleep and recovery. And, uh, you know, all those small nuances that, that, that really make up a tennis player and, and help someone improve. And so basically, long story short, I got injured. Um, I had a stress fracture in my hand between the ages of 17 and 18 and a half. Um, I got the stress fracture basically from overtraining, not from, rec not from recovering correctly and um went back to my sponsors my sponsor said you know this obviously isn't working this this pro tennis thing let's look at going into going to college in america so i was about 18 18 and a half at the time and i didn't really have a clue about uh u.s college uh college tennis i didn't know the best colleges i didn't know where to go i didn't know the difference between a division one school a division two school uh all that kind of stuff and so i uh I think there were some tennis players that had been to Notre Dame and other players had been to Berkeley and other uh, players that had been to the, a lot of these top schools. So I reached out to these schools and I said to them, you know, I'd love to go to college now. I'm looking to play pro after college, but I also want to get an education. Uh, these coaches then got back to me and they said, look, we'd love, to, we'd love to bring you on the team. But the reality of it is, is that you haven't played tennis in a year and a half you're asking for a full scholarship and there's no way we can provide that, you know? So I, I was in a difficult scenario um, at that stage. I really was lost at the time. And I ended up going, long story short, I ended up going to a, a university called North Carolina State University. And the reason why I went there was because my, one of my close friends, Connor Taylor, ended up going there for two years. He ended up putting it in a good word with the coach there. And the coach ended up giving me a chance, giving me a scholarship. And that's where I started my kind of um, my college tennis journey. So I did two years in college. I studied psychology. Um, it was a great experience. I got to top 50 in the country. I, you know, we made quarterfinals of NCAAs. Um, I had my fair share of, of, of difficult moments in college, which again, each, we could go on forever. This podcast could really go on for about five hours, but I'm trying to keep it as succinct as possible. So in, in 2008, I was 20, 21 years of age. And the same sponsors who had supported me at 17 called me up and they said, James, they said, we see you're doing well in college. We really still believe in you. We think you've got a shot at being a good uh, professional player, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I'm, I'm going to, they said, do you want to go um, back on the tour again? And I said, absolutely. I said, I wasn't too happy in college. In fact, I was miserable at the time. And for me, it was like hitting the jackpot. I really, really wanted to go pro. It was everything to me. So at 28 years of age, I'm playing Futures down in Venezuela. When I got this phone call, uh, I made a call to my college coach. I told him I wasn't going to be back um, for, you know, for the following semester and probably never going to be coming back to college. And my career, my career began. And so between 2008 and 2017, I, uh, I played on the pro tour. And that's... That's my story in a nutshell. Wow. Um, no, no, brilliant, absolutely brilliant um, insight into it. If I drag you back a little bit, one, one thing that jumped out at me there is without certain people, maybe the journey wouldn't have happened. You know, and, and, and I guess, you know, obviously this is our 42nd podcast, I believe. 
in quite a short period of time and, and listening to you guys who have achieved so much, first thing that stands out is you're sports mad. Love playing sport, mm-hmm. sport, 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 you know, and the competitive skills. So that's kind of something that really comes out. But then influential others really mm-hmm. stand out. So if we take Ireland as a nation who hasn't had a great deal of success consistently, would you mm-hmm. say if Larry, somebody like Larry hadn't come along and maybe opened your eyes to a to a to a maybe a world rather than a nation, do you yes. think things would have been different? Well, he he definitely changed my whole belief system. Yeah. And he definitely so so I could say for me at the time, you know, he had a massive, massive influence on my life. And he was he was mentored as you know, by Louis Kaye, who, who has been such a successful coach, uh, you know, Olympic uh, champions and Grand Slam champions. And Larry was mentored by him. And so Larry came in with the belief that to me, like he's like, follow what I'm doing and you're going to be successful. Follow what I've been taught and you're going to be successful. And I just believed it. So coming back to your original question, um, yeah, I think, I think it had a big, a big impact. But you know, I don't necessarily think it was it was Larry. It, it, it could be anyone. It, it's just when someone else believes in you, there's a power to having a coach that believes in you. There's a power to having someone in your corner that backs you and that's willing to go the extra mile with you. And at 13 years of age, I felt that. Now, it's not just the coach as well. There's also, I have to work my ass off as well. And I, and I knew that. And, you know, Larry was big on hard work and I was training, you know, I think I was training about 30 hours a week. I was training before school. I was training after school. And I don't think other players were doing that at the time. Um, I knew I was doing more than other players. And that gave me the confidence and the self-belief to, to really believe that I could, be, I could be a great tennis player. Yeah, no, very good. No, I guess, I guess where, my, where my thought goes is, obviously, we talk about not just Ireland, but different nations and we almost tar that nation with the same brush and and it's and then, and then people then maybe don't believe that they can achieve in that nation whereas it just mm. seems like maybe your path was just just shifted your mind was shifted into thinking actually why not you know why not and you know maybe maybe there's there's something in that that you know getting these 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 coaches that have that ability to do that very, very much so. And, uh, and, and one thing I'd just add to that is Larry was big on, on books and reading. And he was the first person to get me into reading. And I remember him telling me the story about, you know, Michael Jordan be, not getting on his high school basketball team because he, he just didn't get selected onto the team. Uh, and, and that fired him up to work hard and eventually become, you know, the greatest basketball player of all time. So, um, yeah, no, there, there, there's tremendous value in having someone believe in you. And, uh, yeah, that's it. James, I actually remember when you were going full-time on the tour, you'd just come back from Venezuela, that trip, and I think you actually got selected to play Davis Cup. Um, and we were playing against Ukraine. I, I think it was Ukraine, and it was in, in Fitzwilliam. Sergei Stokowski, I think, was the... Nyland might have played him as the number one player on the on the team but I remember during the training that week you were you were so pumped about going full-time on the tour and um, I could even sense 
that belief in you, like Dan is saying now, that you really wanted to go for real high heights in in the game. What what was? Why did you end uh, the U.S. Uh, college uh, years er, early? What was so, the reason behind that? Oh, there's there's a lot of different reasons, John. Um, the, the, the main reason is I didn't feel like I was progressing in my tennis as much as I knew I did, that I could. Um, I had been getting a huge amount of injuries in college. Um, I remember having a wrist injury, a twisted ankle, knee injury, hip injury. And I didn't feel like at the time when I was in college, I didn't feel like I was training correctly, recovering correctly, and, and basically just getting better. I didn't feel like I was in the optimum env environment to achieve the goals that I had set out for myself. And so when I was at the end of my sophomore year in uh, May 2008, you know, I was in, a, I was in a, a pretty dark place because college, college is a stressful experience. You know, it was the first time, you know, I, I'm in college, I'm dealing with exams, I'm away from, well, I'd been away from home in, in Spain, but I'd been away from home. It was my first time living in America. And I was, I was just seriously starting to question the environment that I was in. And so when I got this phone call up in the middle of, um, I think it was July 2008, when I got this phone call saying, you know, we'd like to support you and give you an opportunity to go on the tour, I just grabbed it with both hands because it was the opportunity of a lifetime for me. Yeah. Now, had I not had those opportunities, yeah. had, had someone not called me up and, and, and offered that opportunity to me, you know, who knows whether I would have gone on and played, played pro tennis. So the, there is a luck factor involved, and, and, and I'm, I'm highly aware of that, you know. Um, but the main reason was, was it wasn't the optimum environment for me to, to achieve my goals. Um, that's it. But you say there's a luck factor, but you've made that luck through hard work. You know, the, yeah. these people have been watching you for years. Mm -hmm. They've seen that you're a hardworking young man. They've seen that you're dedicated, determined. You know, they've obviously spotted something in you and, and they've liked you. And, and I think that's another big message for players. And we've talked to the Paul Jobs, who's got a similar sort of story. You know, we've talked to a few different people on the podcast. And ultimately, I'm a big believer if somebody wants it bad enough, who, who showcases the values bad enough, there's enough people out there that will take a chance on you and, and giving you a chance. So there's, some, there's, a, there's, an, there's an element of luck in there, but you've absolutely earned that. You know, and... In, in terms of then moving into your pro career, where were you then based? So you finished in college. Did you come back to Ireland? It was, um, uh, it, it was, you know, let me just start off by saying I made every mistake imaginable as a pro tennis player. I made mistakes with my base. I made mistakes with my training. I made mistakes with funding. I made mistakes with, with every, every single thing you could make a mistake with. I made a mistake. Now, at the time in 2008, um, I, actually, I actually, between turning pro in July all the way up to, I think, December, I think I got up to top 500. So I climbed up at a very quick rate. And I was just on the tour playing a ton of tournaments at the time. I was tr trying to get as many points up as possible. And I can't quite recall where I was in 2008. Um, end of 2008 I mean I, it was kind of everywhere I was all over the place I was in England I was in Ireland I was going over to America because I was working with it with a coach over there as well but what what ended up happening was by by January 2009 I got a phone call from my sponsors and they said to me 
you know, that money that we promised you for, for, the, la for the next two years, you know, we don't have any of it. Uh, like the global recession had hit and these people had, you know, had, had lost all their money. So I was in a position by January 2009 where I'm 500 in the world, you know, all systems go, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go, I'm 21 years of age and I've no money in my bank account, you know. Um, because as we all know, you know, even at the futures level, even if you're doing decent, you're still losing money. And so between 2009, uh, 2009 10 and 11, I had no money and I ended up uh, playing league tennis around France and Germany and playing, you know, club matches in whatever country I could play a club match in. And I ended up, you know, staying in hostels and, and grinding for two and a half years. So it, it certainly wasn't all... Um, fun and games it was it was a really tough experience by the time uh 2009 hit it came around and coming back to your question of where did i base i mean i was in i remember going to san remo in italy to train at bob brett's academy to hit with marion chilich i slept on couches in uh, england because at the time larry was working in england for the um the lta uh, i was going back to ireland there was a period there for a few um, months where i was in ireland i trained at dcu at the time, we had about eight Irish tennis players that were on the tour, or eight or nine. We had, you know, myself, Nyland, Kluski, Sorensen, Barry King, um, you know, Tristan Farnmahan, Daniel Glancy, Colin O'Brien. We had Sam Barry. We had so many players at one stage in 2009. Um, so that was actually a fun period. Now we, they didn't all stay on tour for, for, for the next few years, but... Um, then 2010 came around and I was over in England. To be honest, I didn't have a secure base. And that was, uh, that was not, a, that was not a, uh, a good experience. You know, it's very, very important for, for any professional athlete to have a base that they, that they feel they can, they can come back to time and time again. I'm a big believer in that. So if you were to go back, NC mm -hmm. did two years, finished, guys have come in. There's a bit of money there for you, going to sponsor you what would you do different to what you did in that two or three year period? Well, it's, it, it would have been very difficult to predict the recession coming along. You know, yeah. I, 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 you know, I don't think anyone was really prepared for that. Um, what I would have focused on is the foundational elements and of my game and of, of the structure around me. I would have, I would have been very, very clear on who my coach is, yeah. where I'm based, and those two things are obviously the most important things, getting the correct coach and getting the right base. And then once those things are right, then you can start making, um, you know, you can start making decisions on where you want your game to go, what you want your schedule to be and, and how you're going to, you know, achieve your goals basically. And I think at the time I was, I was, I was all over the place. I, I really didn't know what I wanted. And I was, I was trying to learn from everyone about how to do this. What does being a pro tennis player look like? Uh, what does your schedule look like? What is your nutrition game and your sleep and all this, all this really important stuff. Um, so, you know, looking back, I would just focus on those two areas, coach and base. They're very, very important. I guess for me, the question that then comes to my mind, were you able to travel with a coach and how important do you think it is for a tennis player to travel with a coach? Um, for those two and a half years, I wasn't between 2009, 10, and um, part of 11, I'm going back way here. This is eight, nine years ago. I'm trying to remember it all. But there, there were the, the odd week here and there that I traveled with a coach um, or a friend or a companion, that type of thing. But it is absolutely 
critical if you want to get to the top of the game to have a coach with you. You know, when I was, you know, I spent about five years within inside 200 in the world and I was playing all the Grand Slam qualities. And to get from 200 to top 100 or, or higher, you need to have a team around you. It, it, it really is as simple as that. I don't think anyone's going to disagree on me there. I don't, I don't know any player that's made the top 100 alone. I don't know anyone that's actually got to that level alone with no one helping them. Um, so, you know, I, I think you can get to a good level on your own. I think you can get to about five, 500 on your own, five, 600 on your own. But there, 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 there comes a point where you need, you need that support, whether it's emotional support, whether it's technical support, or just having someone in your corner just backing you. We all understand the value of, of having someone there that believes in you. It's, 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 it's a big help. James, you, again, just to reiterate, you, you, you've had a phenomenal career and you've grinded it out and you, you've been through every level of, of the game. And just as an Irish man, being from Ireland, I think it's uh, great to have your opinion on it for Irish tennis to go forward for the future. What would be the big things that you, you believe um, is very important for a nation like ours uh, and knowing the background of it, uh, to go forward for the future. There's a lot of different things. I feel I feel this can really be a long conversation if if we were to really get into it deeply. Um, you know, personally, I, I I think if you train outside of Ireland, I think it's better because you're around um, you're around higher level players. Um, I feel I feel we can still get players to a high level up to the age of maybe 15, 16. But I don't feel Ireland is a place to actually live out of if you're going to be a professional tennis player. Um, because we don't have enough players to train with, you know. And, you know, I remember when I was top 200 in the world and people were suggesting to me that I should go back to Ireland to train. And it just didn't make any sense from a schedule point of view because, I, you know, my schedule was primarily focused on America it was prim primarily focused on the hard courts and it, it just didn't it didn't make sense at the time I didn't want to be going back and playing on savannah courts I didn't want to be you know in that kind of environment and I feel there's a lot of different things John I feel like training could improve I feel like athletes who are actually showing potential to be top top players they're going to need funding you know <laughs> It's really as simple as that. Like it, it's an expensive sport. You know, I'm spent, I was spending the year I was 140 or 150 in the world between January and July, I had spent 75,000 euros. So, and I ended up getting injured in July. I was on track to spend, you know, roughly 150,000 that year. And I wasn't getting any of that money from, from, uh, from Ireland. I was getting that from, from different sponsors. I had sponsors from New Zealand. I had sponsors from America. I had sponsors from England. And if you want to make it and get to the top, you know, there, there is a financial element. We can't ignore that. We can't ignore that there's a financial element. And if, if, the, fun, if the money's not there, um, it's very tough because you, you, you're going to need to pay your coach. You're going to need to pay your physio. You're going to need to pay your physical trainer. You know, at the end of the day, being a professional tennis player is a business. And the one thing that I learned when I got, you know, into the 150 range and the top 200 range and I was playing the slams is like, you have to approach it like a business. And, um, you know, but coming back to Irish tennis players, you know, if I was a, if I was a young Irish tennis player now 
and um, I wanted to be a pro tennis player, I would, I would focus on getting into a top U.S. college first and then going pro. I think the U.S. college system is great. It's highly competitive. There's a lot of opportunity when you do get into America and come over to America. There's a lot, you, you don't know who you're going to meet. And there's a lot of money over here. So I would, I would primarily be focused on that. Now, for someone to turn pro in Ireland prior, without going to college in America, they basically need to have a lot of um, support behind them. And I think that's something that, you know, so, someone like Simon Carr has done. You know, he's obviously Irish number one now. It sounds like he's got a lot of support behind him. He's got the coach, the, the physical trainer, the physio, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's really, really important. So I think, um, you know, I, my advice is to focus on getting into the U.S. college uh, first. I think it's great advice. Yeah, I think it is very, very great, uh, good advice. And it's, um, you know, I think a lot of kids, parents that are listening in on this podcast, I think it's very good to hear it from you as well that's been through it and know how difficult it is to be on the road and the expenses that it entails when you, when you do get out there. Um, yeah. Um, and, and for sure with Irish tennis as well, I think one of the big things that, as you know, James, we've, trying to encourage kids or give them the best platform as possible to try and go forward to get a, you know, a scholarship at, at university. And hopefully then mm-hmm. at, the, at the back end of that, when they come out of university, they can still have the options to go and play professional tennis if they still have the, the love and the hunger for the game. Yes. Yeah, well, I was just going to talk, talk again about the U.S. Uh, college system because, um, you know, as, as a 16, 17-year-old, I was just hearing all sorts of different stories about the U.S. college system. And, and, and quite frankly, I didn't believe in it as a 16, 17-year-old. But when I got over to America and I saw what the top colleges looked like, and I saw University of Georgia, and I saw John Isner coming out of there, and then I saw USC, and I saw Steve Johnson coming out of there, and then I saw Bradley Klan, and I saw these players who were ballers. who These guys are legit, like, top 20 in the world players. I was like, this is, this is the real deal. I mean, if, if you don't think U.S. college system is good for your tennis, uh, you know, you're, you're, not think, you're not seeing things clearly. The U.S. college t- system is incredible. And if you don't feel like it's good, you know, it's worth going over for at least a year or two, try and dominate, dominate try and get to the top of the sport in the U.S., and then go pro. You know, prove it first. Prove that you can actually be the best in, in, in the college for one year, for two years, and then go pro. And as I said, the opportunities that come from uh, U.S. college are, are really incredible. You know, b- between the, 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 the education, the coaches, the people you meet, the connections that you make. Um, I'm a big fan of it. And, and obviously, coming back to, you know, the work that I do here in, in Las Vegas, helping kids who are at risk and disadvantage. I mean, um, we see it time and time again, the benefit of the U.S. college system. You know, it is it, it has changed the lives of so many so many people, and I, I'm a big believer in it. How how did you combine a social life with tennis? How did I combine a social life with tennis? It was challenging. Like, I, I, there, it was it was really challenging because I wasn't home in Ireland all that much for the last five years of my career between the ages of 25 and 30. I was based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. And I was based out of Atlanta, Georgia, because I had a coach that lived there. Um, I had a sponsor that was there. I had a place to stay for free. And 
you know, it was also in the U.S. where there was a ton of tournaments throughout the summer. So it just, it made, it made sense for me to, to be based out of the U.S. And from a social point of view, you know, I remember, you know, I would, I would play these tournaments and then in the evenings, you, you know, you'd be having dinner with different players or different coaches. Um, but the thing is, you wouldn't see that. You might not see that player for another three months or six months. And when you're in those type of relationships, they're, they're, they're not really deep relationships you can develop. It's very difficult to develop, to develop a deep and meaningful and long-lasting relationship on the tour. And for me, you know, being a guy that was single and not really, uh, I didn't have a girlfriend on the tour. It, it, was, it was tough. It was really, really tough. And I was, I was going on dates on the tour in random cities with random people. And that was my way of kind of just like, you know, doing something different outside of tennis and watching a movie and all these things. But the, the, at the end of the day, it wasn't a deep, it wasn't deep and meaningful for me. And, and I think that's, it's very important in our lives. We all want deep relationships in our lives. We all want meaning in our lives. And um, that was something, Dan, that I really, I really struggled with. I mean, I struggled with a lot of things. One of the reasons why I struggled at the end of, of my career, and I heard Liam Brody talk about this in a previous um, podcast. He talked about loneliness. I mean, I remember playing the French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open in 2017. And I won a round in Wimbledon. I beat Ruben Ramirez Hidalgo in the first round qualities of Wimbledon in 2017. And I had about maybe 10 people watching the match. And then I lost in the second round of qualities to Andre Rublev. And I lost in a tight, tight match, three or four in the third. Played a great game. He was just... He was just a little bit better on the day. He ended up made, making quarters of the U.S. Open that year. And I remember just going back to my hotel room, like on my own, didn't have a coach, had literally five people watching that match. And getting to a stage where I was like, what the hell am I doing with my life? Like here I am playing, you know, arguably the biggest tournament of the year, playing a great match, losing a really tight match to a great player. And coming back to this hotel room on my own I'm like this isn't bringing me fulfillment this isn't bringing me happiness and that was really the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me that really started me to question whether this is what I really wanted to do and you know obviously didn't have a team around me at the time and the reason I didn't have a team around me was because I didn't have the funding I didn't have money even though even at top 200 in the world you know, you're, you're, still, you're still just getting by. You're not making massive money. You don't have the funds to, to, to have a full-time coach with you yeah. at, the, at these turns, especially when it's 200 pounds a night sterling in some of these places. So, you know, coming back to your question with the social side of things, it was, it, it was challenging, you know. I, I made, I'm a pretty social person. I was able to make friends most place, places that I went, but most of the relationships weren't meaningful. So um, that's what led me to kind of, where I am today, I have one of the most meaningful jobs I can imagine, you know, where, you know, we help kids who have literally attempted suicide, um, have come through depression, have serious anxiety, have uh, cases of abuse and violence and even murder in the household. And our foundation helps these kids overcome their trauma. It helps them overcome the pain that's within them and basically create a life of inspiration, of beauty, of love. And that's really what we want at the end of the day. You know, we want to, we want to live a life that's memorable and that's heroic. And, uh, you know, I couldn't, you know, I, I think the, the fact that I felt so much of a lack of purpose in my career at the end of it 
has actually led me to a life now where I, have, I feel like I have a lot of purpose. And uh, yeah, that's, that's really it. So Wimbledon's happened. Mm -hmm. How much longer did you play? And then what was the process into stopping playing and then moving into what you're doing now? So I played throughout the summer um, up until the US Open in mid, I think it was mid, uh, sorry, late August. And I played Toronto Qualies that year. I won a round. I beat Philip Vester. I ended up losing to, uh, I don't know who it was in the second round, but I ended up losing in the second round of, of Toronto Qualies. And I went into the US Open and the previous, the, the, you know, obviously going into a slam, it's a big deal. You know, you quality in, you're going to make a lot of money. And, you, you know, you have a lot of opportunity ahead of you. So I made sure to, to pull out of a few tournaments and put in a solid training block going into the US Open. But basically, long story short is I overtrained. I ended up going into the US Open, you know, with a dodgy back, um, not really physically, mentally or emotionally ready to perform. And I ended up, uh, playing Christian Harrison in the very first round of the US Open and uh, my mindset going in was just I'm just going to go for it even though I'm not feeling the best even though I'm not feeling 100% I'm going to go for it take it to him and, and and see how it goes and 4-2 or 5-2 up in the first set I go up to hit a serve I, um, I think I'm serving juice go big down the tee and I ended up as I went up to hit the serve I can just feel this like tear in my back and uh, it was the worst pain ever and it was one of these, it was one of the few matches, if any, maybe one in my other career that I had to retire from. Um, and so that was the last ever professional tennis match that I played. And it's funny, you know, two and a half years, it's, it's almost three years since that, since that match. And it really has flown by. But what, what had happened was after that match, my mindset was to, was to spend the next three months recovering, uh, was to rehab my back, you know, was to get fit again and come back in early 2018. And so, long story short, by the time Christmas rolled around and at the end of 2017, my heart was not in it. I did not have a desire to return to the tour. Uh, I gave myself another three months. And I, I, for me, if your heart's not in it, there's no point in doing it. Yeah. And so I decided after six months, I was... I started to think, okay, my heart's not in this. I've got to start looking to a life outside of tennis and see what's next, what, what the next chapter of my life is going to look like. And it was a messy period, Dan. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a fun period. It was a very difficult period in my life. Uh, but eventually, midway through 2018, I made the decision to move out to Las Vegas to work for this foundation. And, and it's been great since. But it was a, that, that year between August 2017 and, and August 2018, it was probably the most difficult year of my life. And how did you find the foundation? So my roommate in college um, back in 2006, um, a guy named Freddie Prendecki, uh, he was the very first person to come through this foundation. In fact, the whole foundation was started because of him. When he was a 14, 15-year-old, he was involved in a gang. He used to sell guns. Uh, he had a lot of trouble at home. His, you know, there was crim criminal things happening in his life, and, and he was very angry. And basically this one man named Ryan Wolfington um, decided to help him out in his life. And, and I forgot to mention that Freddie was a great tennis, happened to be a great tennis player as well. And this guy, Ryan, ended up getting behind him, ended up taking him under his wing, um, teaching, about the, teaching him about values in life and the importance of doing the right thing in his life. And over the course of the next uh, 18 years, the foundation was developed. So 
when I, back in 2006, Freddie used to tell me stories about the foundation and how it helped kids who are at risk. And I was very inspired by it at the time, back in 2006. And it, it, who would have believed, you know, 12 years later, I would have, I would have contacted him and said, you know, hey, I want to get involved because, uh, you know, it really is special what's happening over here. And James, do you miss, do you miss playing tennis? Do you miss the, the, the tour? Or do you miss the, the game yourself? I miss, I miss competing, definitely. I mean, there's, there's a beauty to getting out there and competing and leaving it all on the line. I know you do too, John, but I can see it in your eyes. You know, you love to get out there and give it 100%. And I was very much the same way. Um, you know, I, I, I love to get out, but it, it really doesn't matter whether I'm playing tennis or whether I'm playing any, any sport. I'm, I'm playing two different sports now in Vegas, pickleball and paddle, which are different, very different sports to tennis, but um, a lot of fun. So, it's funny, your priorities change in life. My priorities have, have changed now. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not focused on, um, you know, that, that, that was a, a diff, that was, you know, that was, you know, almost three years ago now. And I feel like I've moved on um, to different things and a new chapter in my life. I, I miss the people that I, uh, that I had relationships with and, and um, the friends that I made over the years. And, you know, I, I enjoyed a, a lot of the tour, but I, I don't miss the, the lifestyle. I don't miss, you know, living out of my suitcase 45 weeks a year. I don't miss the loneliness. I don't miss the stress. You know, I have since coming off the tour, I haven't been half, nearly half as stressed as I was when I was on the tour. And uh, I realized when I came off the tour that I was pretty much in a state of chronic stress the whole time. I, you know, and that's where injuries come from. That's where bad decisions come from. That's where, you know, mistakes come from. So I don't actually miss the tour, but I do, I do miss competing and, and the relationships that I made on the tour. Do you think you'll ever get back into tennis in any, in any shape or form? Well, at, at this foundation that I work at, um, tennis is a big part of our foundation. So I coach every day. I'm coaching four or five hours. I do, I do, um, you know, I do academy hours, which are about four hours a day. And then I might do one or two private. Well, I do like one private lesson. And then the next four or five hours in the day are spent in the office working, working with, with the kids and the different projects. So to see myself at the high, high, high end performance level, like, you know, kind of professional level, uh, I wouldn't say that's where I'm at right now in my life. Um, I'm not, I'm not close to it. I'm not against doing it, but I'm, I'm, I'm really focused on the, on the, um, on the other stuff right now it's 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 you know maybe it's something that i'll do in two three five ten years from now i really don't know dan yeah. um but uh yeah that's where i'm at right now tell us a little bit just in a couple of minutes tell us a little bit about the foundation about what you guys do yeah so we've been around for 18 years and the whole focus of our foundation the mission of our fans foundation is to transform uh the lives of at-risk or disadvantaged kids through a variety of programs that we have. Um, and so we have, we primarily focus on mental and emotional health and our mental and emotional health is supported by um, singer songwriter, Jewel. And she's big, you know, she's got an incredible story herself. She was homeless at one stage in her life, you know, had issues with uh, severe anxiety and depression and all these type of things. And so she gets behind our program and she gets behind kind of what we're doing. We do a number of different events with her and different things throughout the year. And um, we're also supported by Bob and Mike Bryan. So that's our team Bryan pro program. They've been supporting us for pretty much since day one. 
And, uh, you know, we do events with Bob and Mike Bryan. So last year, for example, Bob and Mike had an event with Jack Nicholas, the golfer, and we were down in um, Palm Beach doing an event with them. And the funds from that event went towards our foundation. Um, so we focus on mental health. We focus on tennis. We focus on entrepreneurship so that kids know how to create businesses, know how they, how they, know, they know how to um, basically manage other people. We try to teach them skills that they're not actually taught in school. And, you know, most of us, when we go to school, we learn English, we learn French, we learn science and math, mathematics and all that kind of stuff, but we're never taught how to deal with our emotions. How do you deal with anxiety? How do you deal with depression? How do you deal with um, anger? and sadness and these are the these are these are the most important things we can be taught how to deal with and i can say that for sure as a tennis player that if you can't deal with your anger and you can't deal with your sadness or your 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 emotions i should say you're you're going to struggle you know because the mental game as we all know is 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 pretty much 90% of it and uh, our foundation pr focuses a lot on that uh, along with different projects and uh, and different things like that so it's an amazing foundation and uh, does a lot of good. Does a lot of good. Incredible. Can you give us a couple of examples of what mm -hmm. they do to teach kids to deal with their emotions? For sure. So um, we've got a we've got a, a number of different things that we do in our. It's called our Jewel Never Broken program. Um, but meditation is without doubt the biggest tool that we teach um, because you know meditation allows us to become aware of our thoughts some people are against meditation because they think it's about not having any thoughts but what meditation teaches is it teaches you to notice your thoughts and become aware of them and, and to let them go and you know we've we've a girl here uh, and she's very open with her story her name is cheryl which when she was 13 years old she tried to take her life twice and uh, she came from a family of um you know alcoholics and, and very difficult circumstances and she's now going to Stanford uh, as a 19-year-old, pretty much the best college in the world. And she credits her change in her life to meditation because when you can notice your anger and you can let it go, it's, it's very, very powerful. And so we're big on meditation. We're big on um, group discussion. Um, so we try to create an environment for these kids where they can talk openly about the challenges that they have. And they can talk openly about... Um, whether it's the fears or the insecurities or the doubts or whatever it may be. And we create this environment where they're not, they're not judged by it. You know, I know for a fact, everyone is dealing with something, you know, I, I've talked to hundreds of kids over the last two years and there's not one person I know that is completely and utterly secure in themselves. They're dealing with something in their lives. Um, and we try and create that space where they, they feel it's okay to be open and vulnerable because when you, if it, a lot of people don't want to be open and vulnerable because they're afraid of being judged and they're afraid of what other people are going to think about them. And we, we, we kind of, we, we, we don't really have that mindset here. So, you know, we, 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 we teach meditation, group discussion, mindfulness. We get, we get out in nature a lot and we try and have fun. You know, we, we do like different events on a weekly basis. And I think over the course of time, through our different programs, they end up healing, healing themselves and healing their lives. And the final thing that I'd say, and I know you guys are doing it because, you know, being in the position that you're in, Dan, and you're in John and myself as a coach and mentor, 
you know, you, you honestly have the, we're in a very kind of sacred position because you can influence someone's life to a very high level. And, you know, being a mentor is a big deal. And we, we have a, we have a, a multi-generational mentorship program here where, you know, you have kids who are 12 years old and they're being mentored by a 16 year old. And you've got kids who are 18 year old being mentored by myself or, or someone else, some other staff in the foundation. And we create these relationships, these meaningful relationships where kids can come to you and say, Hey, listen, you know, I'm really struggling with this in my life. Uh, can we talk about it? And you know, we all know, we've probably all heard the saying, a problem shared is a problem halved. Yeah. And, you know, we're big believers in that. And th through all these different programs and all these different ways, um, you know, we, we try and help them, you know. And, uh, and then with regards to tennis, uh, you know, a lot of them are, end up are high-performance tennis players. We've had, we've had seven number one in, in America um, ranked junior tennis players here. Uh, we've had a number of NCAA champions um, and we just use tennis as a tool to help them with their life. Um, that's really our focus. I absolutely love it. It's awesome. Yeah. I, I really do. I really hope, you know, afterwards I'm going to get in touch with you. To, I'd love to hear more about it. Um, yes. I'd love to see how we could try and replicate something similar within the academy. You know, it's a, for sure. It's, it is such an important, important area, you know, and we can talk about hitting forehands and backhands and whatever you want to do all day long. But ultimately, mm -hmm. it's about welfare first and foremost, you know. With 100%. And, and, and the way that you, you've put that is, I think you've put it incredibly well. And I know that I'm really keen to learn more about it, and I'm sure lots of people listening. So well done to you and the team. It's, thank you and i'd be i'd, I'd be yeah. happy to share i'd be happy to share uh you know what we do and uh, it's really like an ecosystem and it comes down to culture you know we're big big on culture here yeah. and and high standards and we have different principles like we're, we're 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 mostly led by different principles here and if there's one thing that we talk about we we, we always say follow what you know is right here and do the right thing you know and if at the end of the day if we're all following what we know is right in every moment you know, what more can you do in our lives? If you follow what you know is right in every single moment, you know, what else can you do if you're giving your best? And so we talk about that and, and we talk about uh, loving the grind. We talk about hard work. Um, obviously, it's a culture of non-entitlement, um, you know, being aware of egos, being aware of uh, where our minds are leading us and kind of having those open discussions about uh, you know, where our minds can take us because the mind, the mind can take us to very dark places. And the, the, the value of meditation is that it, it teaches you to become aware of your mind and to become aware of your thoughts and then to notice it and, and, and then to let it go. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hugely powerful and, and the results kind of speak for themselves. When, you know, when we, when we have kids overcoming these, these serious challenges and going on to, to some of the best colleges in America. Brilliant. It's incredible, James. It's unbelievable. It's great listening to, you know, those skill sets that you talk about, like you said, uh, that are not taught at, at school and um, life experiences that you've gone through yourself as a tennis player and to be able to transfer that into, into the life that you, you have today, I think is amazing. And like, like Dan said, I, I would be very, very interested as well in learning more about this and being able to help other people and players um, in the game, certainly here in Ireland. Um, so I'd love to get in touch as well if that's Let's all right. Let's do it. To, 
Let's do it, John. Let's do it. James, we traditional, we have a traditional quick fire round on controllables. However, before (laughs) the quick fire round, we write very few things down before the podcasts in terms of what we're Mm going to talk about because we want we want the conversation to go in the direction that a natural conversation will. Love that. But one thing I did write down that I have to, have to get your thoughts on was mm-hmm. 2014 US Open when you qualified. You know, <laughs> t- tell us about how that was. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So I'm trying to think of the build up before. Okay. It's a bit of a strange story, but I'll, I'll tell it to you real quick. So, um, Midway through the summer of 2014, I had played it. I was playing challengers in the U.S. and Canada, and I ended up um, I ended up losing first round of a challenger in Vancouver. Um, this is about three weeks before the U.S. Open, and I was exhausted, Dan. I mean, I was completely and utterly burnt out. And the U.S. Open, I think it was in two weeks, and I was completely and utterly exhausted. And I was asking people, you know. I was talking to my, my team and stuff, the people that were helping me at the time. And I was saying, listen, I'm, I'm exhausted. I don't even, I don't think I'm going to be ready for the U S open. I need to, I need to, I need to do something to, to, to rest before this. And at the time, this is 2014. And I cringe when I think of this, this is six years ago. So what I'm like 27 at the time, someone said to me, they said, well, why don't you go down to Las Vegas and, just let loose for a couple of days. Why don't you just let loose? And at the time, I was in that headspace. I was, I was exhausted. I just wanted to let loose. I'd never been to Las Vegas before. And one of my favorite DJs was playing in a nightclub that night. It was on a Friday night. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to go down and I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to do, go down on my own to Las Vegas. And I'm just going to listen to this DJ. It, it, wild, wild story. And there's a lot of parts of this story I have to keep out. But Long story short, I ended up going to Vegas for a couple of days after losing in Vancouver. Had a great time, you know, felt great about myself, felt loose and relaxed and all that kind of thing. And I ended up going down to Florida to train for about a week prior to the US Open. I was down in IMG. I was working with Ryan Harrison's dad there, Pat Harrison and Christian Harrison and Ryan Harrison, all these guys. I was getting brilliant training in prior to the US Open. And then I went into the US Open. I remember winning my first round 6-1-6-2 against Gonzalo Lama, this uh, Chilean player. Second round was down a set, a break, and 15-40 on my serve against Yuki Banbury. Ended up coming through the match. Uh, ended up winning, you know, five in the third. Um, went back, staying in an apartment in New York at the time. Got back to the apartment at midnight, and I had last round qualies the next day against Zizang from China. Now, obviously, last round quality of the U.S. Open, biggest, probably you know, one of the biggest matches of my life. And I get back to the apartment. I, in my match against Yuki Bambri, I'd been drinking nothing but Gatorade and energy drinks and anything just to get me through the match. And so when it came to uh, going to bed, I couldn't sleep. So the night before the biggest match of my life, I'm tossing and turning. And every 30 minutes, I'm looking at the clock. It's 1, it's 1.30, it's 2, it's 2.30, all the way to 5.30 in the morning. And I called my parents at the time. They're obviously five hours ahead in Dublin. And it's 5.30 in the morning. And I, I think I cried. And I said, mom and dad, I was like, I've got the biggest match of my life in about five hours. And I haven't slept a wink. I'm so effing tired. And I, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how I'm going to get through this match. 
And so they're like, just do your best, try and sleep even an hour or two. And they're, they're like, we'll pray for you, James. We'll do all these different things. And, and I was like, please do, please pray for me. So I go in and I'm playing Z Zhang first round, or sorry, last round qualities US Open. And I'm working with a coach at the time, Jeff Salzenstein, who's a very good friend of mine. And he had a big help on me in my career. And I lose the first set six love, Dan. I come out. I swear to God, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost sleeping on the changeovers. I can barely hit a ball. And I, I lose the first set six love. And there was a bunch of Irish supporters at the side. There's flags. There's everything. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is going on here? Biggest match of my life. And I'm absolutely blowing it. So I end up going to the bathroom to uh, a toilet break midway through or started the second set. And this is, this is no joke. I'm, 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 and the, 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 the toilets there at the U.S. Open, they're public. So, you, you know, you're, you're, you're right next to Joe Schmo there going to the bathroom. And right next to me, there was um, one of those vending machines. And I, just, I asked one of the guys that was repacking the vending machines to give me a can of Coke. I said, I'll pay him after the match. And he gives me a can of Coke and I take it. I never take Coke. I don't drink any soft drinks or anything like that to this day. But I knew I needed a pick-me-up. I knew I needed some caffeine. I knew I needed something that was going to jolt me. And I come back out. I win the second set 6-2 or something. I go 5-2 up in the third. I get Zhang. And every two games, I'm asking my coach to get me some, co some Coke. I'm like, here, will you get me Coke and a Mars bar? And he's getting me Coke and a Mars bar. And people are looking at the side thinking, what the hell is wrong with this guy? So I go out. I'm 5-2 up in the third. There's, I don't know, you were there, Dan, right? I wasn't there, no, I wasn't. You, you, you weren't there, but I wasn't there. I was, I was third, watching, though. I was watching. You were watching. So, 5 2 up in the third, there's packed crowds, people are screaming along the sides. There's, you know, people saying, let's go, Ireland, let's go, McGee, all this kind of stuff. I go out, I completely cramp up. 5 2 serving, lose my serve to love. It's 5 3. He holds to love. I lose eight points in a row. I then go 5-4 up. I'm trying to – I literally had no control of my cramps at this stage. I get out of the changeover. And you know yourself with the U.S. Open. It's so hot. It's so humid. Tons of people cramp in the U.S. Open. And I'm taking salt. I'm doing whatever it takes to overcome these cramps. I go 40 love up. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm, I'm right there. I'm right there. Just got to go get over this finish line. Zizang ends up coming back to juice. I end up saving two break points. It, it's, it, it's going from – the best moment in my life to a, a total nightmare. And I don't know how I did it, but at 5-4 juice, I ended up hitting an A-set wide at juice and then an A-set wide at my advantage to end up, you know, winning the match, falling on my knees and, uh, you know, end up bursting in, into tears and, and qualifying in. So it was an amazing experience uh, to actually do it. But there was, a, there was a whole lot of drama that people didn't see behind the scenes. Unbelievable. It's amazing. What a yeah. story, Jay. <laughs> well, thank you for yeah. sharing that. I mean, that's an incredible story for people to hear. And, 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 I, and I would say to people, go on to YouTube. I'm sure that you can find that match. Because it was, it was incredible. But I guess that emotion, that emotion of you're 27 years old, you've been through so much. I guess that whole emotion just floods to you at that point. That's a great way of putting it. It really was that feeling of flooding out. And I remember, and I'd never cried after a win, Dan. I usually, you know, there were times throughout my career that I lost, there were tons of times I lost matches that I technically should have won. 
But uh, I remember sitting on the bench after that match and just pouring my eyes out. And it was the most, it was almost like a, it was very therapeutic. It was like a huge release of emotion that I think I had kept within myself for years. And to actually let it out was very, that was the best part of the, of the whole experience, you know, just to let out, let out all that, that emotion. And, you know, um, you know, had a few different moments like that in my career, but that's definitely one that, that stands out. I'm very grateful for that experience. I'm grateful for the people that got behind me and supported me, not only in that match, but, but, but throughout my career. And uh, certainly my coach, Jeff Salzenstein, at that, st- at that time, who helped me. So it was, a, it was an amazing moment. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I experienced it. And no Coca-Cola or Mars Bar sponsorship afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing. Nothing since. And I haven't had a can of Coke since either. So uh, one, one and done. Brilliant. What a brilliant stuff. I'm pleased, I'm pleased I asked the question. I would have been gutted if we didn't get that out in the podcast. So that's brilliant. <laughs> that's so funny. Now we'll move to the quick fire. Okay. Um, nothing too tricky. By the way, I'm pretty. I just have to tell you in advance, I'm not great at quick fire because I, I tend to be a slow thinker than a fast thinker. But go on. <laughs> Davis Cup or ATP Cup? Davis Cup. Artificial grass or clay? Clay all day. Serve or return? Return. US Open 2020 or cancelled US Open 2020? Cancelled US Open 2020. Would you like to be Irish Davis Cup captain one day? Yes. Can you see yourself living back in Ireland again? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, don't know. I really don't know. Maybe. What, one rule that you would change in tennis? Uh, one rule that i change in tennis? Uh, mm, God, this is where I think too much. I would say no warm up. Very good. That's all we've got for you. But honestly, <laughs> you've been an absolute gem. You've been a gem. Absolute belt. Brilliant. <laughs> Love. Well, I have to say, I have to say again, guys. Um, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing. As I said, Dan, prior to this uh, conversation, I saw on your podcast that you had a mental health awareness week, which I'm a big fan of. You know, obviously. I've dedicated my life now towards mental health and emotional health because it means that much to me. And to have you guys um, have these conversations and create them uh, it, to help other people and to help so many people that w- will either listen to this conversation or other conversations, I commend you to that, on that because it's, uh, you guys are doing great, great work. I love following what you're doing. And, you know, as I said earlier, the position that you're in as a mentor coach, it's a very, very big position, as, as we all know. We really can influence the lives of, of young athletes and young people. And it doesn't, they don't necessarily have to be tennis players. It's just a human being that's in front of you. And I feel like both of you guys kind of embody that and you, and you really do care about the, the people that you're helping. So thank you for that. Thanks a million, James. Thanks, thanks, Thank thanks you, a John. lot, man. Really, really means a lot coming from you as well, man. I've admired you as a player and, and as a pro, and uh, I wish you the best, man, with everything you do in your life going forward here. Um, you're a legend. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Great to reconnect, James. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Take Bye. care, guys. Big thank you to James McGee for his time 
as always with our fantastic guests um loved it i love that podcast um hope you guys did as well he speaks so well um and, and actually i spent a little bit of time on the on the tour with james and and to see how he's put his his mind to to use and he's and he's moved into into this area is is not surprising to me at all he was always a very kind caring individual um always always had time for other players other coaches um and now he's he's combining his his fantastic knowledge of tennis but also his fantastic fantastic knowledge of of human beings and, and making a difference you know very fulfilling life that he's now leading um and we wish him all the very best hope you guys are continuing to enjoy the podcasts um we have again lots coming up um we're still committed to our two two podcasts a week uh, later on this week will be mike dixon uh, mike dixon has 35 years as a journalist um you'll know him from the daily mail for the last 30 years um one of the most well-known uk journalists um working in tennis uh, got got great insight looking looking at tennis through a different lens and, and i'm sure that's going to be fantastic as well and then next week we have mike joyce who former coach of maria sharapova and victoria azarenka uh, to name a, to name a couple and current coach of timio babos um, who who has won the last few Grand Slam doubles, I believe. So Mike brings us brings a great insight, and and then we've also got Mark Bullock, who has dedicated his life working in wheelchair tennis, um, and visually impaired tennis, and and again that's going to be a fantastic listen. So uh, we'll keep them coming. Uh, if you guys you guys you guys want them and keep supporting. Thanks for reaching out. We've got some lovely messages and emails and it makes it all worthwhile. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, till the next time, I'm Dan Keenan. My co-host is John McGann and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>